Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Stunt Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. My name is Mayor Fertig. It's 1 o'clock Eastern time on the stream. We're in the middle of Fundraising Marathon 2014 for JM and the AM, which is, of course, the cornerstone of the entire broadcast schedule here on the Nachum Siegel Network. So please, if you're listening to the show and you like what you're hearing, or frankly, if you're listening to the show and you don't like what you're hearing, please call anyway. And please uh, go on your computer, rather, and pledge. Uh, we're taking pledges, of course, online at all times, not just during the three hours of JM and the AM. So go to jmandtheam.org and make your pledge to uh, to support another year of great programming on WFMU, which, of course, now is 91.1 FM, 90.1 in the Catskills, and 91.9 in Rockland County. And uh, thanks from all of us. Uh, we certainly are uh, trying to get set up for a big finish tomorrow, Friday, day 10 of the fundraising marathon. And uh, everybody's help is appreciated. So wherever you are in the world, if you like what you're hearing at NahumSiegel.com, please go uh, onto that network, onto uh, that website, or go to jmtheam.org. Um, on a separate computer, of course. Please keep listening. And, uh, you know, open a new tab, that is, and uh, and pledge your support to JM in the AM. This is The Stunt Show. It's brought to you uh, each week on the Nachum Siegel Network, 1 o'clock Eastern, by a rotating cast of characters, and uh, I do mean characters, uh, Jordan B. Gorfinkel, who has a new video out. Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but it's kind of funny. Google his name. Mark Zomick is one of the other uh, hosts of The Stunt Show. Daniel Gordon, and again, I'm Mayor Fertig. And it is a pleasure to be with you today. My guest today is a young woman who has just written a book that I found fascinating. Um, I found it at once easy to read, and I found it difficult to read. And uh, my guest is Leah Vincent. She is the author of Cut Me Loose, Sin and Salvation After My or- Ultra-Orthodox Girlhood. So we're going to be talking to Leah in just a couple of minutes. But first, um, I've, I picked up a habit from Ellie Hagler, who is, of course, the host of the OU Presents, The Jewish Reaction. And uh, Ellie has a nice thing where he likes to let his guests choose some music. So I asked Leah if she'd like to choose some music. And we'll start with Journeys, No Place Like Home. You had searched so long for the answers and the proof. And they said you'll find it here. With promises of truth But the long white roads And the chanting in the streets It left you cold Your soul still had to see What you're looking for Is right there at your door Believe me when I tell you, friend You couldn't ask for more What your heart has known that there is no place like home so come on back oh you'll never be alone and when the others came so gently as peaceful as a dove they stirred something inside of you they only spoke of love but your mind cried out what of history the hatred to my race and you knew then you still had not found your place what you're looking for is right there at your door believe me when I tell you friend you couldn't ask for more what your heart has known is that there is no place like home so come on back Despairing and 
used It traveled far and wide But you passed through one small country Where you started feeling pride So you found a place to study What you thought was ancient law And you wished you'd learned about it all before That was Journey's No Place Like Home on the Stunt Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. My name is Mayor Furtick. Thanks for tuning in this Thursday, the 6th of March, 2014. It is the Stunt Show brought to you at 1 p.m. Eastern every uh, Thursday on the, Nachum, on the Nachum Siegel Network. Uh, stay with us because after the Stunt Show and the Throwback Thursday, we'll have a program from the JM and the AM archives. That's always interesting. We see what Mark Zomick digs up from history. And then, of course, 6 a.m. tomorrow morning. JM in the AM and day 10 of the fundraising marathon. You can pledge right now, though, at jmintheam.org, and uh, we certainly appreciate that. As I said, my guest is Leah Vincent, who is the author of Cut Me Loose, Sin and Salvation After My Ultra-Orthodox Girlhood. Leah, thank you so much for coming down for uh, for this conversation. Thanks for having me. It is my pleasure. Welcome. Um, it is, uh, it is a, a difficult book to read, for a lot of reasons. It's, it happens to be an easy book to read in the sense that you really did a great job writing it. It is, it is quite enjoyable um, in, in that sense. The, the subject matter is tough, uh, particularly, I think, for everybody. Different reasons why it would be difficult for everybody, but you know, certainly members of the Orthodox community who were who were reading the, about the experiences that you had in your childhood, as described in the book, um, it, it is a difficult book to read um, for a lot of different reasons. Um, Give me a thumbnail sketch. If you're talking to somebody in the elevator, what's the book about? The book is about my journey from an ultra-Orthodox childhood as the daughter of a prominent rabbi to leaving that world and the very difficult and tumultuous time I had trying to find myself, trying to find a good, happy, healthy life for myself after that experience of leaving ultra-Orthodoxy. And you go to pains in the book to um, to draw distinctions, to not draw you know, broad caricatures, oh, yes. to explain terms, to uh, 
to uh, and and some things that you don't say in the book. Let's start with that. I, I will just you know tip of the hat to you. You could have, based on the experiences you describe, you could have really gone to town on your family um, and used their name in the book, and you didn't. No, I disguised well, their name. Why? It's I don't want to hurt them at all, and I know that they won't see it that way, but I don't want to hurt them, and mm-hmm. I need to tell my story, but I don't want to cause them any more pain than just doing that will do. And in a broader sense, I have a lot of respect for this community that I left, even though I was so hurt by my experiences leaving, and I want to be a part as much as they'll allow me to be in seeing change happen, and just slinging mud and being angry isn't going to be very effective. Right. How many years has it been since you've essentially gone on with your life? I mean, today, I mean, we could start with a happy ending. I mean, yes. today you're, you're a wife, you're a mother. Yes. Um, you, uh, so it's been, it's been a while, right? Yes, I'm 32. Does time heal all wounds? No, it doesn't. It does not heal all, heal all wounds. I still carry the wounds of certain things that have happened with me. Um, that said, my life is beautiful and wonderful, and I have a lovely daughter and, and work that's meaningful in a community that's loving, and I am in a wonderful place. That's, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Um, something that occurred to me, and this is a little bit off the topic, it's certainly not any, anything deep, but your last name, Vincent, mm-hmm. which is, I don't know what your married name is, and you don't have to give it if you don't want to. It's fine. Um, there was an, a reference early in the book to maybe an artist or something. I was mm-hmm. trying to remember something, Vincent, that was apparently mm-hmm. deeply meaningful to you. And I said, oh, that's where the name came from, <laughs> except that it turns out that that's not where the name came yes. from. You you had a, a brief marriage, and that yes. was your married name. Um so I thought that was very, I thought that was very interesting, and it's sort yeah. of like a little nuance. I don't know if, I don't know if it was almost like a red herring. Well, I think it's interesting. You know, whenever you tell a story about yourself, you're yeah. always editing and using construction. This isn't a journalistic piece; it's a story of memory and right. everything. And um, it was interesting in choosing these stories that I share here that there are these kind of, to me, beautiful circles. Mm-hmm. You know, that this favorite Don McLean song about Vincent Van Gogh right. was so important to me, and then I ended up with the name Vincent. And there's right. another big one also with my husband. Um, where he reminds me of somebody from my childhood. Mm-hmm. And then there's something with Gandhi. You know, so there's a couple right. of circles that come. And even though I'm not a religious person anymore, I find a lot of beauty in the way that life can give us these pleasant surprises. Like I said to somebody yesterday, there's no such thing as coincidence. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's true. Um, you know, you talk about it not being a journalistic mm-hmm. endeavor, but is it fair to say that would I be putting words in your mouth if I said that you attempted to be to be faithful to the narrative, to the, to be factual? Absolutely. It was very important for me, especially because I know that this is a message people in the Orthodox community will have a hard time hearing, but I mm-hmm. want them to hear it. So as much as possible, I tried to do what I could to make sure my memories were accurate, to speak with other people who were there. I really wanted to be as truthful as a person can be. Because that's, I, I, certainly, it's not going to come as a surprise to you that as I discussed the book with a number of people, in the you know week or so since I read it, um, several people made the same comment. They said, well, you know, that's her side of the story. Mm-hmm. Her parents must have their side of the story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like as we often say in, in other circumstances, there are three sides to every story. There's this side, there's her side, and there's the truth. Mm-hmm. So, so that's a comment that I got a lot. Um, I really, having read it, got the feeling that you made the effort mm-hmm. um, just in, in little ways. I mean, you... You refer to ultra orthodox. Um, you actually come from yeshivish background. Mm-hmm. I guess. I, I guess when you know you're you're doing a book title, it's it's a lot easier to say ultra orthodox. You know, a book coming out from uh, Doubleday is not going to have yeshivish on the cover. Let's right. just be honest with each other. Um, but you you took great pains in the book to actually define terms 
um, and things like that, which I respected a lot and I appreciated a lot. And so my uh, two things I want to touch on, we'll see if we can, I'll mention both of them to you, and then we'll see if the conversation won't take us too far afield that I'll get distracted from following <laughs> up. We'll see how that works. Right. Um, the first one is um, I'm wondering about uh, the uh, comment that you've gotten mm-hmm. on the book. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering about if anybody's called you a liar to your face mm-hmm. <laughs> or anything like that. Um, I'm wondering what the most, you know, sort of interesting, maybe the most hurtful, the most on-point comments that you've gotten were. And also, um, from the subject of, uh, now I've lost my train of thought, but uh, talking about, you know, two sides to a story, mm-hmm. are, is there anything that's that's come up, you know, after the fact that you said, oh, I should have, you know, said it that way mm-hmm. or, or, or gone back. And obviously other questions too. But let's first talk about the comments sure. because I heard that a lot. Yeah. And like I said, I, I really kind of defended it a bit, not knowing you from, you know, mm-hmm. at all because I really did get that vibe from it. Um, what are some of the things people have said to you? Well, first I want to talk about this idea of, you know, you said there are three versions of a story, mm-hmm. her right. side, my side, and the truth or whatever. I think especially this sort of thing, there is only two sides. There's my side and your side, the experience of the people in it. There mm-hmm. is no truth when we're talking about the past, unless somebody was videoing it and capturing the neurotransmitters going on in everybody's right. brain, right? Like, there isn't. So I really only try to talk about my experience and try to avoid ascribing motivations to people beyond myself and mm-hmm. just try to share what I went through. Um, one of the things that I also worked really hard to do is I do have to, tell, in telling my story, talk about some pretty difficult things that people have done to me mm-hmm. and expose things that can be seen as flaws in other people. But I'm also very honest about my own flaws. Very much so. You know, I read a lot of memoir before I did this, and I really got turned off by memoir where people tried to make themselves out to be the hero and everything they did and the people they loved did was wonderful. Like, no, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm going to be honest, and I hope that my honesty with myself gives me some credibility when I talk about other people. The book is nothing if raw. Right. I mean, <laughs> if it's not raw, it's not anything. Yeah. It really is. Um. I have done as much as I can to avoid the comments and the discussions that go on on the Internet in particular. Mm-hmm. I just don't find it helpful. Um, of course, there have been some public statements by my father, by prominent people in the firm world mm-hmm. that have called me crazy and a liar. Rabbi Shaffron from Rabbi the Rabbi right. He didn't name me directly, but he described my book and said, you know, he's crazy and a liar. Right. And, and you, in the book, you describe a period of time that you actually spent in, in, undergoing psychiatric care. Exactly. And you, you were... You were Cutting yourself. Yeah. So there's two things. So, One is like the actual accusation. Right. Am I crazy according to a standard that says somebody who spends time in psychiatric care or somebody has a therapist is crazy? Mm-hmm. Sure, sign me up. Like, I'm, I'm <laughs> telling you that, you know. Right. Am I a liar? Like I said, I've taken every pain to tell the truth, but this is not a journalistic piece. It's a right. memoir. It doesn't contain everything that happened in my life. It contains one story, and I'm very clear about that on the first page where I describe what I'm trying to do here. Right. Well, um, you you stop, by the way. I mean, th- th- that was a, a really important turning point in the book, I felt, uh, when you, you described in some detail, you know, these episodes of, of self-harm. And then some, you had a, I think it was a dream, basically, uh, where um, you, you discovered that... Um, you were basically given permission to move past yes. the key worry that you, you were experiencing, and you you said that you stopped cold turkey. You never yes. you never did that again. Yes, yeah. So I, the, I definitely had turning points, and mm-hmm. my life is vastly more healthy now. Obviously, I don't think I'm crazy, um, <laughs> but I, I just want to be like I'm not trying to hide anything, you know. Right. Um, in terms of these types of accusations, it's painful. Nobody likes to ha- be called names. Sure. But it's also really disappointing. Like, I have a lot of respect for the firm world. I think there are some major mm-hmm. problems that need to be addressed, but I have a lot of respect. And this is so boring. 
Like, everybody who, from my community of formerly ultra-Orthodox Jews who gets up to speak is called crazy and a liar. Right. And it's just a boring response and disappointing. This is a really rich community that's full of deep, important thoughts and compassion for people who are suffering. First, where's the compassion? Right. And second, if, if you disagree with something, like, let's engage in constructive conversation. Just trying to call people names, it doesn't do anything other than maybe comfort you. What it reminds me of, actually, is... Um and I don't want to get bogged down in the whole subject of abuse um, because it's a, a whole different subject, obviously, but, um, well, largely a whole different subject. But I've heard people dismiss claims of people who describe having been abused as children saying, oh, they're off the derach. Mm-hmm. Well, genius. <laughs> Why do you think that might have happened? Hmm. What could have happened in their life that might, you know? So yeah. it's like this circular, it's this circular thing that's just, you know, A, pointless, and B, kind of silly. Yeah, and people, I think, are very afraid. And I think mm-hmm. dismissing somebody as less than human because they're off the derrick, because they're crazy, or because they're a liar, helps them cope with their fear. But it's not a constructive way to move forward. Right. My guest is Leah Vincent. She's the author of Cut Me Loose, Sin and Salvation, After My Ultra-Orthodox Girlhood. Uh, and it only occurred to me today, when I was thinking about the, um, the cutting, um, as well as some... I don't want to put words in your mouth, but by the way, did you know that this past Saturday, this past Shabbos was um, Self-Injury Awareness Day? I did not. I didn't know that either, except that somebody uh, who works here at the OU, or by Jack Abramowitz, who uh, is the editor of OUtorah.org, brought it to my attention and then wrote an article about it that's now on the OU website, which is actually really a very nice article. Um, and he wrote the article. We discussed it with a psychologist who writes for us as well, and um, and she, you know, she gave it her blessing. And we put it online. It was just sort of a quick thing just to mark. And we thought it was sort of an important subject, so we would put something online about it. And then I, you know, I was kind of getting through the book, and it sort of all came together. As we said, there were no coincidences, mm-hmm. right. I suppose. Um, what does the title mean? It's, I think, a title, really, that means different things to different people. Um, I think it's directly cut me loose as referring to my journey of trying to of being pushed out of my community, of trying to leave my community. But, of course, that sort of double entendre of this mm-hmm. meaning of cutting, because this book mm-hmm. does talk about my experiences with self-harm. Right. Um, at one point in the book, you... I can't remember exactly which episode it was in your childhood. It might have been something about uh, about buying a sweater. No, I think it was when you, you told your mother that you wanted to go to college. Mm-hmm. And she threatened to have you locked up. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, at the end of that section, I think it was that section, you'll correct me if I'm mistaken, um, you said something like, if they'd only negotiated with me, Mm -hmm. if they had just taken me seriously enough, maybe I'm putting words in your mouth now, to to negotiate with me and have a discussion, um, I would still be from today. I, I say, I, I don't remember my exact words, but it's very likely that I would be. Yeah, I, I am paraphrasing. Yes. It's not exactly what you said. You, you <laughs> yes. said it much more ni- much nicer, <laughs> you know, much more nicely because, of course, you are the author and I'm just the guy <laughs> on the radio. But um, you, you said that. Is that is that something you still think is true? Yeah. Um, I. It's very important for me to say I don't represent every other person who has left ultra-Orthodoxy. Well, I have plenty of peers who have had very thoughtful journeys. My journey was not thoughtful, especially in the beginning. It was more... There are other people who have left, you know, you know, the Haredi community who are modern Orthodox today. Exactly. There's, I mean, it's a very diverse community. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm just being for my own self. Right. I did not want to leave from life. I definitely didn't want to leave Hashem. I loved God so much. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but my parents chose to take a really harsh line with me that ended up driving me further and further away. And the book really talks about how for years, despite my sins, despite this distance with my family, I was still struggling to be let back in. Mm -hmm. And there really just wasn't a way for me to come home again. There are so many instances in the book where you describe these poignant moments where you're interacting, those rare occasions when you were interacting with your family, and you, you're just looking for an opening, mm -hmm. just looking to just show me some love. Right. And it ne never seems to happen. Yeah. Um, in fact, the, the, I, I think the most disturbing thing for me, the thing that I found most affecting in the whole book is when you go back to Pittsburgh for a family simcha. Mm -hmm. And it, ironically, you are eating on paper dishes and using plastic silverware. Yeah. What was that all about? So I, mean, I, 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 I almost found that hard to believe. <laughs> and I'm not doubting your, yes. your memory. I just I, I couldn't wrap my mind around it. Yeah. Um, I was told that it was because I was having relationships with men and my mother was afraid I'd somehow pass disease on to the rest of the family. Obviously, when I look back on it, it seems to me she was also making a statement that she wanted to make it clear to the rest of the children that I was different, that I was not part of the family or mm -hmm. something. I, I find it hard to believe that she really believed I could pass on disease through, paper, you know, through using the China. Um, but yeah, that was her message to me. That, that actually, to me, was the, was the most difficult thing to read in the whole book. I mean, just thinking as a parent, yeah. um, it, it, was, it, was, it was very disturbing. Um, I think one of the big things, though, you know, people often ask me, how could your parents do this to you? And mm -hmm. I don't know because, I, you know, only they could really explain that. But I think a big thing is that I'm one of 11 children, and mm -hmm. a lot of what was done to me was phrased – was, was sort of couched as, we have to protect the other kids. Mm -hmm. And this is something I hear from some of my peers as well. So they were trying to be good parents just to the rest of the children, and I wasn't fitting with the program, and so they found it easier to keep me at a distance. Right. Um, if you don't mind, let's talk about your, your parents a little bit more. You, and if anything you don't want to talk about, I'm, I'm not going to go, you know, I'm not that guy from, you know, well, let's not go there. <laughs> anyway, I was thinking of a particular newspaper article I read recently that just made my head explode. Hmm. Um, people writing online about your family, whom, again, you have not identified publicly, but of course, as the way these things go, some people online have, have identified your family. Mm -hmm. um, so people who know them would seem to indicate online that, you know, they're actually, A, they're, they're in the words of one person, pretty chill mm -hmm. and, and pretty laid back. And also, and, and in keeping, I guess, with the um, with the nuance that you put into the book about the differences between different, you know, types of Orthodox Jews and so mm -hmm. forth, and you talk about modern people, and, and certainly in Pittsburgh is, is an out-of-town, quote-unquote, mm -hmm. community. Um, it, it's it's hard almost to reconcile um, the image of a, of, of a, a Rav in an out-of-town community, no matter how yeshivish he may be, mm -hmm. um, with at once relating to his congregants, um, who are certainly not as yeshivish certainly maybe not as from even as mm -hmm. he is um with the way that you know the childhood that you describe it's, it's really hard to to understand that what do you yeah do, do you attribute that to anything i think that people don't really understand how kirov works if they're not in the belly of the beast i mean i think it i think that kirov has a mission and task and my father's a kirov rav our family was very mm -hmm. steeped in kirov there was a mission of trying to bring people closer to our way of life mm -hmm. um and so of course you know, my father would 
approach somebody who was not as observant with a lot of warmth and love. But for his own children, he had a very different standard, and people wouldn't have seen that because they weren't in my home when there were no guests around. And again, having spoken to many peers who've been in similar situations, mm-hmm. this is a dichotomy that often happens in a queer family, where you'll see as a child even that less from Jews are treated with so much warmth and respect, at least to their face. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to your own struggles and journeys, there's no space for that. Hmm. Very, very... Uh, it's something that really bothered me in the book. It, it, it just it seemed so hard to reconcile. Um, have have your parents read the book at this point? Do you as, know? Do you have any idea? As far as I know, they have not. They have not. And, of course, on, on many occasions, they have questioned your versions of events. My father has, yes. Yeah. Are, are you in touch with them? Um, I have a very small and precious relationship with my mom right now, but we can't talk about some of the more difficult things we kind of... I have a daughter, so we talk about her, and which is very nice. But my dad has not spoken to me since before my kid was born, but he still has issued these statements calling me crazy and a liar. And although he hasn't read my book, he says everything in it is inaccurate. Make statements like that. Right. Has your has your mom met her granddaughter? She has, yes. That must have been nice. It is, yes. That's very nice. That's good. Uh, my guest is Leah Vincent. She's the author of Cut Me Loose, Sin and Salvation After My Ultra-Orthodox Girlhood. This is the Stunt Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. My name is Mayor Ferdig. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. Uh, last week we played, last time I did the show, we played music. So this time we uh, decided to uh, do something of a little bit more substance. And uh, I hope you're enjoying the show. It is, of course, a uh, for some people particularly, it will be a difficult topic. Um, for other people, it will simply be a fascinating topic and one that they, that they feel that uh, needs to be paid attention to. I fall into that latter category. I guess if I thought it was an impossible topic, I wouldn't be having this conversation. Um, in any event, this is The Stunt Show. We're part of the Nachum Siegel Network. We're, you're heard every Thursday at 1 Eastern time on the Nachum Siegel Network. And, of course, um, the larger JM and the AM Nachum Siegel universe is preparing for tomorrow, for day 10 of Fundraising Marathon 2014. And uh, if you have not yet uh, made your pledge to help support this amazing radio project, I hope you will. Go to jmandtheam.org, and, uh, or I'm sure there's a link on nachomsegel.com as well. And uh, please pledge your support for another year of JM and the AM on WFMU. If you have any idea how much it costs to run a radio station, if you had any idea of all the different little things that can go wrong in a radio station, um, I know on day one of the marathon during the State of the Station address, uh, General Manager Ken Friedman talked about the fact that a new transmitter may be in WFMU's future, and that's about twenty grand. And uh, immediately, some nice person uh, called in a pledge for uh, five, six, seven thousand dollars toward a transmitter, which was pretty amazing. But obviously, there's still another, uh, you know, thirteen to fifteen thousand to go. So hey, if you happen to uh, have that kind of money in your back pocket and you'd like to pony up for a new transmitter for WFMU. 91.1 FM, uh, we would certainly appreciate that. But, of course, any any amount is appreciated, and uh, you can pledge online at jmtheam.org. And, hey, maybe I'll be the one to read your pledge tomorrow on uh, on the JM the AM Marathon. So uh, this is The Stunt Show. My guest is Leah Vincent, and we're talking about her book. And um, were there any comments? We, st- we talk- touched on this before. Were there any comments that actually um, surprised you? And more specifically, a lot of the pre- writing of the book, the, the pre-reviews, so to speak, before it actually was released or as it was being released, felt like people hadn't actually read the thing. Did you get that impression or was that just me? I think most of my critics, my critical critics, have not read the book. Um, I, 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 like I said, I try not to pay too much attention to the mm-hmm. overall chatter, but I hear people talking about it saying, I haven't read it yet, but or people going on Amazon writing reviews, I haven't mm-hmm. read the book, but this is what I have to say about it. 
and I, I guess I would, I'm very, I think it's great people have opinions, but it would be wonderful if they could actually read the book and then tell me or tell the world what they think. That would be, uh, that would be nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's an organization you're involved with called Footsteps. Yes. That when I was the publisher of a Jewish newspaper, this is going back now four or five years, so um, Footsteps was a lot newer then. I thought about doing a. I thought about doing a profile of the organization, mm-hmm. and it was a largely orthodox paper. And I, I just, I guess in a sense maybe I chickened out, but I really, I just had the feeling that I just had this vibe that footsteps was, and we're going to explain what it is in a moment if you never heard of it, was an organization that was actively involved in trying to pull people away from from religious observance. I've since heard people argue with that vociferously. Some people are very attached to that idea, but people who are members of Footsteps, staff mm-hmm. people of Footsteps, and board members of Footsteps will tell you explicitly and show you our visioning and our mission statement, everything that shows that we support choice. So what is it exactly? It's an organization that supports people who are leaving insular ultra-Orthodox backgrounds and helps them go live a self-determined life. Mm-hmm. Um, but they will not encourage you to be any kind of person other than the person you want to be. And a lot of accommodation is actually made so that people can continue to observe in their journey. If they, somebody keeps kosher and they're at a large FISIPS event, they will be kosher for them. People, There's no push on any level to persuade people to be anything other than whatever they want to is be. Has it always been like that? Or has it changed? Has it evolved? It has always been like that. Um, there are always, like in any organization's life, slight shifts, but they've always been committed to this idea of people have a right to choose their own life. I think that a lot of people in the firm community have been very threatened by this organization and don't like it and so have chosen to defend themselves from it by making up these statements mm-hmm. about what they do or don't do. But I, I think that you can disagree with this organization without having to make up things about it. it, it it's not out there to tell anybody to do anything other than to live a life of their own choosing. Well, actually, I mean, what it seemed to me when I first heard about it, aside from the perception that I described to you, um, was that its its primary purpose was to take people who had never, honestly never had the benefit of a secular education of any sort and then decided they wanted to change their life. For good, for bad, you can make the, you know, and ultimately it's up to them anyway, so you don't get to decide good or bad. But uh, but for, for whatever reason they decided they wanted to change their life, they don't have the tools to open a bank account or, or, or get a minimum wage job. You, you know, I mean, it's hard to get a job flipping burgers if you literally have no education. Um, so my sense was that the organization, or my understanding was, uh, this book didn't require any deep perception on my part. My my understanding was that this was an organization simply to help people make that sort of transition into into the broader society after having been, in some cases, you know, actively kept from having any secular knowledge. Yeah. So just before I answer, I just want to mm-hmm. point out one thing. You said they take people, and I'm sure you didn't mean that intentionally, but I, they don't take anybody. They don't do outreach. People it. have to come to them. They have a website to give them information if people want to, but people have to come to them. They don't go out into the from community and try to cajole people to join their I was going to say you point know. taken, but I won't even go. I'll say point <laughs> offered and accepted. <laughs> Great. Um, and then what was your actual question? Um, in terms of education, yes. Mm-hmm. So education is a huge focus. A lot of people, especially men who grow up in the from world, mm-hmm. don't get basic secular education. And if you want to go on and go to college or have a career, you need a lot of help. And if you've, college has been vilified, secular education has been vilified, you may not even know how to navigate what resources are out there. And so a big part of what Footsteps does is provide that assistance to people. Before I was in my current job, I'm the chief communications officer of the Orthodox Union. Um, it's my day job. Um, I 
previously was the director, was the, the senior director of media relations at Yeshiva University, and without without going into you know details of private conversations and you know things that that I um, I'm not able to talk about because they were private conversations. I feel comfortable saying that this was a topic of conversation occasionally at YU. Uh, there, there was a, a young Satmar student who started at YU when right, right after I got there, uh, that you know the coming semester, and I was told that he uh, had a, you know said to his parents, "I'm going to college. I want to go to college." And you know, in many homes, I mean, you had that experience, so, and he was obviously from on paper anyway, a, f- a far more. Um, you know, right-wing community than you were in. Um, in many communities, I guess, it would have been a bad day for him. And apparently his parents said to him, okay, if you must go to college, you're going to go to Yeshiva University. And sh- they they showed up at Open House, and then they signed up. And I, I guess the, you know, the pshara, the compromise they made with him was he wasn't going to live in the dorms. Um, and I'm pretty sure, I don't, I really only had a few conversations with him because I, we decided early on we weren't going to necessarily, you know, do any real PR with him. We thought about it, but it just seemed like it might make him uncomfortable. So we let it go. But, um, my understanding was that he basically came by train every day, I guess, from Williamsburg. And he went to class, went to Shear, went to, went to his secular classes, then he went home. And, uh, I thought it was pretty remarkable, actually. Um, and there was some question as to what outreach why you could or should be doing to further right communities, just to, just to let people know that there's an option out there. Um, I, I've, I've been so fascinated on the occasions that I've met people, and I don't mean to turn this into a monologue. I've been so fascinated on the occasions that I've met people who have left far, far communities far, far to the right of where I am and, and sort of found themselves in the middle and are living a modern Orthodox life. Um, there's, a, there's a writer right now for the forward who would I think would describe that way. Um, and not everybody has that option. But, but this whole education thing, you know, sort of is, is at the center of your story in a sense. Yeah. Um, tell us about the education that you ultimately wound up getting. Um, so I really wanted to go to college. I decided when I was a teenager. And as you described, my parents reacted pretty strongly to that, telling me that was not an option. Um, but eventually, after many difficult years, I found my way to Brooklyn College, and I was a night and weekend student, full-time honor student, until I got my degree. We're fellow alumni. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then I went on to graduate school after that. So graduate school was a big deal in the book. I mean, and, and your acceptance, the process of waiting for acceptance letters and mm-hmm. getting them, and then we haven't revealed yet where you went, mm-hmm. um, was, a, was a big deal in the book. Yeah. Why? You know, I think I've been talking about my book a lot, and I talk a lot about the external stuff that had to change in order for me to pull my life together. Mm -hmm. But the biggest thing that really had to change was my internal sense of self, which in a way is much harder to manipulate because it's not tangible. You talk about having been trained to please men a lot. Exactly. I mean, as a from girl, as a yeshivish girl, of course, growing up out of town, I saw people who went to college, who had graduate degrees, but that wasn't for me. And so Mm -hmm. my, my imagination was incapable of imagining that I could have a full education. And so to it's it's hard to explain how difficult it was to wrench my brain into thinking like I am allowed this. I have permission to pursue my education. I I am smart. Like this was big for me to to, mm-hmm. to grapple with. Um and so to go to graduate school it just seemed like such an impossible dream. And it you know it would also for me it was really important at that point this is you know towards the end of the book I'd been through so much and 
you know, no matter what I went through, my parents' voices were and still a big part of my brain, I think, for everybody that's always the case. Mm -hmm. And they had said a lot of things about me, like that I'm bad and that I'm possessed by a demon or that I'm evil. And it was so important for me to get some very strong validation from the world that, of course, I was working on building myself up, but also that I wanted somebody with the position of authority to say, you're good, you're doing all right. And to get into graduate school, especially the place that I wanted to go, was would be such a huge step, a huge, you know, permanent stamp of that I'm all right and that I've done well. You said the graduate school that you set your heart on was something that even even the most anti-education, you know, sort of person, in, in, you know, in, in your past would have been hurt, would have heard of and been impressed by. So where'd you wind up going and what'd you do with it? I went to Harvard um, and I did a degree in public policy. And to be wow. frank, it wasn't really a great academic strategy. I wasn't thinking, like, this is where I'm going to learn what I need to. I just thought, like, Harvard, that's like the biggest stamp of approval. And I wanted to prove to myself and the world that I was capable of it. And ultimately, I did. Um, so I did a degree in public policy. I focused a lot on management and leadership. And I had worked in a nonprofit before, and I went to work in a nonprofit afterwards. And then about a year out after graduate school, heard about somebody who had committed suicide who had left ultra-Orthodoxy. And I had promised myself that I would write this book one day, and I realized, like, this is the time. I, on the outside, looked like any other successful, secular, assimilated woman, and I had this very complex and heavy history, and I really needed to pay attention to it. So I quit my work, and I started writing this book, and became very involved in footsteps and very involved in activism, trying to address the issues like the right to a self-determined life mm -hmm. that I think are so important. Wow. So so your your work is footsteps today? It's not footsteps only, it's activism, and a lot of my activism is with footsteps. But I'm involved in a number of other projects. Um, a lot of women who leave ultra-Orthodoxy um, unfortunately end up becoming victims of sexual assault because they don't have any education around this or any sense of empowerment because, mm -hmm. you know, for a variety of reasons. Sure. So I just got involved in a new project for that, and there's a few other projects like that that I, I've been working on. Very interesting. And that's... Your work. That's yes. you, you. I assume you, on some level, you get paid for some of this. <laughs> for some of it, but it's my calling, and I'm passionate about it, and that right. really is what matters most. Right. Absolutely. Um, you're married. I am. And your husband is. What does he do? Um, I don't like to talk about him very much. I feel like that's fine. <laughs> I want to leave him out of it. But I do mention him in the book. Mm -hmm. He's the man that I married in the book. That's fine. Um, the. What, what's the takeaway um, when you're talking to somebody um, in, in a non-adversarial way, when you're mm -hmm. talking to somebody at the book who has a hard time with your story, who has maybe maybe they have some sort of, you know, difficult time reconciling themselves with, with the story that you tell, the things you describe happening to you, um, is there some takeaway that you, that you can offer to somebody like that who's really not inclined to be maybe to, even to be sympathetic? Um, that's not adversarial. Is there some way to, that you something that you say to try to get across to people um, that that your story uh, has a lot that needs to be taken away from it? You know, I think there's some people that won't hear what I have to say, no matter what. And in writing this book, I try to give everything I could and hold nothing back to reach as many people as possible. Um, I think at the end of the day, there's some questions, and you don't have to agree with the conclusions I have, but there are questions about. What happens when you don't give people a right to self-determined life? What happens when you take away the concept of Bechira mm -hmm. and you punish people to keep them from or keep them the way you want them? What is the cost of that? And do you truly believe this is godly? 
And, you know, I think that there's a lot of really important questions to be asked about that that come across through this story. And I think the other really big one is, what is the role of women in from life? What are the values we're shaping our girls with? And, of course, most from girls will never encounter anything I did. But a lot of what I encountered was because of how I was shaped to always obey the men who rule our, ruled my community. And what kind of message does that send to a girl when all the decision makers in her life, mm-hmm. the people who speak for Hashem, the people who speak for God, are all men? What does that tell her about herself? And again, I may have my own conclusions, but I think people need to figure it out for themselves and whatever they're comfortable with, whatever makes sense to them. But I hope that these questions can be discussed. Right. Um, do you... Do you see a, a, a future for yourself, possibly, of, you know, you've, you went from one extreme to another. Do you see yourself possibly floating back to the, to a, toward a center point at some point, at some time? If you're talking about religious observance? Yeah. Um, I see myself engaging more and more with my Judaism, mm-hmm. and I imagine that that may continue to grow. Um, I don't believe in God, and I find it hard to imagine how I could undo that intellectual conclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do see it likely that I'll become more and more involved in Judaism, and I have discovered this passion for becoming involved and trying to change things and trying to improve things. Um, so, you know, I, I do have a daughter, and as she grows, and she, if she wants to have a strong connection with her heritage, her religious heritage, I think that this will become a larger part of my life. Right. I read a, um, I read a, re- a review of your book, this morning online where somebody compared you to um, to an earlier book, Debbie something, I forget Deborah her name Feldman. right now. Right, Unorthodox, I mm-hmm. think was the name of her book. And also to Shalom Auslander, who mm-hmm. wrote a book a, a number of years ago. I guess he was the first of what some might call this mini-genre. Although mm-hmm. I, I read somewhere where somebody declared it a genre, you know, of, <laughs> off the derech. I don't think that's true because I don't think there's enough of a, a representation. But right. um, So uh, two questions for you. First, um, the book Unorthodox got a lot of criticism because mm-hmm. there were really some some questions uh, posed about about factual stuff in the book that was uh, that you know they were real questions mm-hmm. and did any of that did any of that uh, sort of blow back on you and did it did it did it affect how your book was received that's that's one question mm-hmm. and the other question is you you talk about belief in God and it, it has occurred to me that Shalom Auslander is mm-hmm. so angry with God mm-hmm. that he clearly has more amuna than most from people because <laughs> he couldn't possibly be so angry if he didn't believe deeply that there's a that there's a one above. Yeah. yeah. Um, so first, to answer your first question, I, I think that um, my my story is very different than Deborah's, but I think people who did not take well to Deborah's story. Mm-hmm have found it convenient to say that her story and my story are the same and just use it as an excuse to build their case of denial and disengagement with the issues that are raised. And that's unfortunate. Um, I, Deborah's book was very much about Hasidic life, and my book was about yeshivish life. And right. I have to explain this to Goyim all the time. Like, this right. is a dif- as different as Catholics and evangelicals. See, like, it's two different that's cultures. That's funny. Now, there's a word I never use. <laughs> what? Goyim. Oh, <laughs> is that hate, a pejorative? I hate that word. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Nations of the yeah. world. I'm people. Not, no, I'm not outside. criticizing you. I'm just saying, I'm just laughing. At, you know, it's, yeah. it's funny, you know, with your background, and my, and it's, that's a word I just like, oh. Yeah. If I, heard, if I heard my kid use that word, I would definitely flag it. You know, it's one of those things that I haven't yeah. said in so long that I never yeah. re-examine with an adult brain whether mm-hmm. or not it's an appropriate word to use. Um, yeah. But I will say, like, yeah, I, th- I think that your audience in particular will understand that different communities have very different experiences, mm-hmm. and so nobody's written this story yet. Right. And also, my book is not an expose on From Life. Like, maybe one day I'll write that book, but that is not this book. This is my story and what happened after I left From World. And then, you know, I think that there's an intellectual question about whether or not there's a God or maybe it's a scientific question. But if 
there's this God space in the brain of a child who is raised religious that even if that God no longer exists for that person as they grow older because they've reached the intellectual mm-hmm. conclusion, that space is still there. You know what I mean? Right. In a way, almost like our mother and father's voices remain in our head, even if they've passed on or we have a different relationship with them. And so Shalom Alsander obviously has a huge yeah. God ghost roam in his brain. And I still have a relationship with God, with the idea of God and the concept of God. And in fact, I'll confess that I'm probably the most spiritual atheist I know. Like, I don't, I don't believe in God. It doesn't make sense for me intellectually. But there's a, a, a story that I was raised on that still has value to me and that I still, even when it hurts me, I still, I, I have to engage with it still. Right. Um, a lot of, a lot of atheism today. Um, I have a former coworker who is a, a, a militant atheist. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, we interact on Facebook and, uh, he's, uh, like I said, we used to work together on radio and he's a radio reporter, not in New York now. And he is militant about it. And it's, it's, I don't engage with him about this because I, I would assume he's not looking to hurt my feelings and I'm not looking to have a fight with him and Facebook is the absolute <laughs> wrong place to have that conversation yeah. anyway. Um, so, you know, we, we interact in other ways. But um, there are so many atheists who are so militant that um, I just read something yesterday and I don't remember if this is a published thing or an unpublished thing that somebody just wrote to me. I cannot remember this right now. But they said it's not actually atheism. It's almost like an anti-theist um, that they, th- that so many people are against the idea, not of their having a belief in, in, you know, in a creator, but they're against the idea of the next guy having a belief. Mm-hmm. And, and they've, they're, they're, they're really almost violating somebody else's rights to just do as they please. You know, it's not being shoved down their throat, but they're mm-hmm. shoving their views down somebody else's throat. I'm sure we could have a very long, interesting conversation yeah. about that. I think I would say the one point though is that, Religion obviously and clearly does a lot of good. Every religion does. But there are some very serious challenges that religion is facing. And I think some people get so so upset about mm-hmm. what's happening in the religious world because they feel like the religious community is not holding themselves accountable. Right. And I think that's why you see that, like people wanting to intrude. And I get this question, too. You know, I talk about the role of women and that women need more empowerment. And people say, what right do you have to tell the from woman how to live her life? Right. And I think that we do have a right when we see a religious community or any community failing on some basic human rights issues. We have a right to be critical. And in a way, I mean, I think there's a lot of ways to be critical and you want to be constructive obviously sure. and just being rampantly angry isn't going to help but you know <laughs> not everybody gets that message right. <laughs> on either side of the discussion that's true but i think it's a, it's a measure of respect saying mm-hmm. i take you seriously so let's talk about this issue because this is a concern to me right my guest is uh, leah vincent her she's the author of cut me loose sin and salvation after my ultra-orthodox girlhood you're listening to The Stunt Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. My name is Mayor Ferdig. Thank you so much for uh, spending this hour with us. Uh, I hope you're finding our conversation interesting. If it's uh, if you're finding it disturbing, I hope you're uh, processing that in a constructive way. If you are, uh, whatever your reaction is, I, I do thank you for listening. It is... Uh, uh, the Stunt Show, which is just one part of an extensive schedule of programming every week on the Nachum Siegel Network, and all of that based on the cornerstone, the foundation of JM and the AM, which is now conducting its uh, its uh, 2014 annual fundraising marathon. And in fact, we're in the last hours of that, essentially. Tomorrow morning, Friday, 6 a.m. New York time, uh, we go on the air for the final three hours and change of fundraising. And uh, if you are not yet part of that, I hope you will be very soon. Please click on the uh, on the uh, donation link on NachumSiegel.com or on jmnam.org and make your pledge to support another year of great Jewish programming on WFMU, uh, which is uh, more than just one radio station. It's three radio stations, and that in turn has given birth 
live to the live stream, and there's lots going on. So please, uh, please do be part of it. Uh, the uh, the recommended subscription level pledge is ninety dollars, but whatever you give is certainly appreciated. And if you're in a position to give uh, thirty one hundred dollars in recognition of thirty one years on the radio, the Nachum Siegel has been offering his talents and abilities and. Uh, and uh, and sleep, if you will, to the Jewish community. I hope you'll do that as well. Uh, again, just click on the uh, donate button at nachumsegel.com or at jmandam.org. And stay tuned, because after the Sun Show today, we'll have Throwback Thursday, three hours of an historic edition of JM and the AM from the archives, as selected by the one and only Mark Zonick. And then Nachum with, uh, I'm sorry, Yigal Siegel with Homeward Bound, then by the book with Nachum, sponsored by Koren, Spin Class with Michael Fragan, political analyst extraordinaire, and then an hour of Jewish soul with Charlie Bernhout. All that and much, much more throughout the week on the live stream at the Nachum Siegel Network. And this is The Stunt Show brought to you weekly by a rotating cast of characters, including Jordan B. Gorfinkel, Mark Zomick, Daniel Gordon, and again, my name is Mayor Fertig, and my guest is Leah Vincent. So, Leah, we have a couple of minutes left, and then uh, we're going to play another selection that you, uh, that you, uh, that you picked from the... Uh, music archives here at uh, the Nachum Siegel Network. Um, what are um, what are some of the things you've learned about yourself um, in general? Or? In general, through the experiences that you had going through everything, you said you're 32 yeah. now. Mm-hmm. Um, you have obviously you've changed your life in a big way. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you went through college, you got graduate school, you're, you're an adult, you're married, you're, mm-hmm. you're a mother. Um, is there anything in particular that strikes you? Uh, do you like yourself now? I do, yes. Did you, did you always? You really had to, no. you have to work on that. Oh, I definitely had to work on that. Yeah, and I didn't know who I was. And yeah, I, I had so much judgment and conflict about who I would become. It took a very long time to get to a place where I would like myself. I was hearing a song on uh, on um, on Pandora mm-hmm. before um, a writer, uh, the songwriter, basically said, you know, that when you're when you're a kid, you know, you really don't know who you are, and you're going to make a lot of a lot of mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, is there something that you had in common with other kids your age, even though you were living such a different life? I never felt like I had anything in common with any peer group until I found footsteps, actually, at the age of 25 or 26. When I was a kid, I was doing Kirov. I was the rabbi's daughter. I was the firm kid. Nobody Mm -hmm. else was as firm as us, so I didn't identify with people. And then once my journey got started as a teenager, I went through so much trauma so fast. I just never felt like I could connect to anybody my own age because their experiences seemed so much more pleasant and easy and uncomplicated relative Mm -hmm. to mine. Can we talk about some of the various characters in your book without sure. identifying anybody. I'm curious if you know what became of various people, if you lost touch with them completely. For instance, um, the girl in Manchester. Shalamet. Shalamet. I assume these names have all been changed? They have. Um, whatever became of her? Um, I don't want to say too much about what became of her, but she and I have reconnected on Facebook, really? which is wonderful. And um, we have a wonderful friendship on Facebook, and mm-hmm. it's really lovely to have an, a nice piece of my childhood again in my life. Right. And what about Naftali? Um, I haven't connected directly with him, but we've communicated a little bit through his sister, and he's been very lovely and yeah. <laughs> that was an interesting part of the story. I mean, I have a son named Naftali, so, you know, uh, as soon as I see, you know, I, obviously not his real name, but right. uh, it's still like, oh, Naftali, okay. <laughs> um, what about your siblings? Uh, did any of your siblings go to college? Um, none of my siblings, as far as I know, because I'm not in touch with most of them now, went to college. Um, I have 
one brother who, as I talk about in the book, mm-hmm. also left from life, and he's in law school now and married with a child, and mm-hmm. he and I have our sort of mini-family unit, and the sort of the refugees of the rest of the family, but nobody else in the rest of the family went, as far as I know. And are you, you said you're in touch with your mom, your mom has seen your daughter, mm-hmm. uh, your father not. Mm-hmm. Are you in touch with any of your other siblings? Um, most of them not. Uh, I know that some have an official policy of not talking to me, and yeah, I don't. I haven't spoken to most, the vast majority of them, in a long time. What about people from the Pittsburgh community? Uh, some people have reached out to me online, which has been really lovely, saying, "I wish mm-hmm. I knew you were going through this. I would have wanted to be there for you." And mm-hmm. that's been really wonderful. I haven't heard any critical voices, although I am sure there are plenty of people who, like you said, find it really hard to reconcile the man they knew with the father that I knew. Right. Um, two of the places that you spent time, three of the places that you spent time, um, as described in the book, are Manchester. Um, I guess Yerushalayim. Mm-hmm. Where in Yerushalayim? Harnof. Harnof. Ah, Harnof. And uh, and then of course New York, but mm-hmm. sort of Kensington, right? Mm-hmm. And um, what was the uh, just without getting into too much detail? Obviously, we want you want people to read the book, which is available on Amazon, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what was the sort of the, the thread of the story? I mean, in, in thumbnail form, mm-hmm. um, we haven't really touched on this. I mean, you gave you, sure. you just gave an overview at the beginning, mm-hmm. but you you went from Pittsburgh to Manchester, Manchester, and in Manchester you spent the summer there. What was that all about? Well, I was sent to Manchester mm-hmm. because the schools in Pittsburgh were not firm enough. I had thought I would go to seminary in Manchester. My parents were already starting to be worried about me. They said, "Why don't you just go finish?" High school there. Your, your mother is British, right? My mom is British, yeah. And your, you had a sister who was living there, or it was an I aunt. You had an, an aunt. aunt. I, yeah, I have a lot of relatives who live there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went there for to finish up high school with the expectation that I would continue on in seminary. I then went to Israel for the summer, hoping to come back to England for seminary, and was mm-hmm. told I couldn't come back to the country ever again because I right. had bad, done things that mm-hmm. were ruining my family's reputation. And Writing letters to a boy. Right, this Naftali that you mentioned. Right. Um, I then spent a year in seminary. They kind of scrambled to find me a place. I ended up at a Balshuva place. Mm-hmm. Um, With people much older than you. People much older than me. It sounded me. like it was a completely inappropriate placement. I mean, <laughs> yeah. just in the scheme of things. I mean, looking back, I, I, yeah, I, I think it made no sense. I, I guess they didn't have a lot of options. What do you do? with a girl who's been labeled bad, and my parents just didn't know what to do. I was in that program, in that school for the summer, which kind of made sense, Mm -hmm. but for the year, it was the wrong place for me, and it was a very hard year because of that. And then I ended up in New York um, after that year was over and Mm -hmm. had a job and tried to find my way, and went. this is most of the very difficult things that happened in my life happened in New York um, as I was just struggling to figure out what my life would look like now that I wasn't I had been excluded, really, from my family and from from life. Mm-hmm. The job that you had in New York, and this is a question that came up uh, in some writing somewhere, um, one of those, I think, reviews prior to the publication that may not have actually seen the book. Mm-hmm. But I, I remember reading reading your you know description of uh, how you came to find a job in an apartment and mm-hmm. thinking the whole story is horrific, but that, actually, that detail, actually, that was critical um, in the book was not accurate. Mm-hmm. That it, it seemed like your mother found you the job, found you the apartment. Is that accurate? My mother played a role in finding the first place that I stayed at for mm-hmm. a period of a few weeks. But the actual apartment that I lived in afterwards, I found on my own in an ad in the Jewish press. Really? Yes. Wow. Plug for the Jewish press for real estate <laughs> section. Yes. Wow. Yeah. The Greenwald family is appreciative of that. <laughs> um, no question. Uh, so you you came to New York from... Israel. You yes. had been supposed to go to Manchester, but you you had an episode in in 
Israel, the, the, the letters. Well, and the also, letters that happened in England where they oh, found the out about them in, when right. I was in Israel. And, and, and there was a there. sweater that was, that was referred yeah. to. What was that all about? So there were a couple of things I look back on that sort of ended my childhood. And one was writing letters to this boy. And the other was I bought this sweater with my allowance at the beginning of my year in Israel. And it was very tzniyas according to the letter of the law, but it was very tight and mm. not really tzniyas according to my parents' standards. And I had a sister who was living in Geula, and she saw me in the sweater and told on me to my parents, and they cut off their allowance, which was difficult. I, you know, I had a roof over my head. I was in a dorm, but I didn't have money for anything else, you know, food on the weekends, bus sure. tokens, whatever. But really, it was an emotional break that happened then that was much more impactful in my life. My dad stopped speaking to me and didn't for a very long time afterwards. And my relationship with my mother, which was already very tense, just disintegrated completely. Mm -hmm. And you, you wound up getting a job to get some extra money. Yeah, I got a job doing Spundra, um, which was was difficult. And I think it's all about context. You know, I, I've worked hard in my life and I didn't... It's not the working hard. It was the idea that I was had been thrown from grace and reduced mm -hmm. to scrubbing toilets and no longer a part of my family anymore. Right. So you, you went back to New York, you got this job. What, what was the job exactly? You never really described it. It was a secretarial job. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was a Jewish company? Mm-hmm. So at some point you started to feel more and more out of place, I guess? Um, eventually, yeah. I don't talk about it in the book because this is a memoir, so I mm -hmm. have the flexibility to reduce things. I don't talk about my whole career. I did not right. stay at the same job, but I don't give that whole sort of, I don't give my resume here. Right. Um, but I, I actually did work in Jewish companies most of my career before grad school. Right. And, and all the time you were going to college. Yes. So you were basically in night school. Yes. Full-time, night and weekend. Very difficult. Yeah. <laughs> and you describe, without getting into too much detail, a, uh, what by anybody's standards, would be an inappropriate relationship with with a with an, with, a, with an educator at, at the college. Yes. Um, what did anything ever happen to that person? Um, I don't know. I imagine not. I don't name him publicly in the book. I'm not mm -hmm. out seeking some kind sure. of retribution against him. I don't think anybody at the college knows what happened. They know about it now. <laughs> well, they don't know who it is because right. I did disguise the person's identity. Right. So, in other words, when you described him as the chairman of a department, I think uh, no. that's not so. Yeah. Yeah. Believe me, I sat down with the lawyers of, of, of Double sure. Day to make sure that I wasn't incriminating anybody <laughs> by mistake. But I'll, no. I'll bet. <laughs> yes. Uh, very, very interesting. So we like to we like to end by playing another piece of music that you selected. Uh, you know, I'm really sorry we didn't get to the fascinating subject that you mentioned of Jewish music's popularity in the off the Derek community. Yeah. Can I say one, one quick thing sure, about it? Yeah. That I think what's so interesting about this vibrant off the Darach community, it's its own refugee community, and mm -hmm. it has its own culture. And there's this real love for certain elements of where we grew up in. And like I said to you, I'm so happy you're going to play this song. It makes my inner 11-year-old so happy. Like There's <laughs> this great love and, and, and affection for certain parts of our life that we want to hold on to. Um, and I think that's a really wonderful thing about our community that people, from, people who are from might be surprised to learn. It is very interesting, and I was surprised. I mean, and even knowing the you know the overall appeal of Jewish music from Jam and the AM and all that stuff. I mean, I've I've known that since I'm 19, but uh, that that was very interesting to me. So we'll play um, Destiny, Freedom Flight, and uh, before we go, we'll uh, we'll I'll just thank you. Thank you. Thanks for coming in. I really appreciate the opportunity to discuss this with you. It was very interesting. Um, and uh, continued uh, continued success with your writing career and uh, and, and with your endeavors and uh, and good luck. Thank you. It's it's deeply meaningful to me to be able to reach a from audience. I think that there's so much important conversation to have, and I really commend your courage and 
inviting me on and having me and having this conversation. Speaking personally, I don't scare that easily. Leia <laughs> Vincent, thank you very much. Now, Destiny, Freedom Flight on the Stunt Show on the Nahum Siegel Network. The moon obscured by the dark clouds, it was a black Russian night. Inches warming on a meat preparing for an illegal flight. The Russian Air Force pilot on his forehead beads of sweat. Racing down the runway now on a ride he won't forget. Up, up and away. That's it for the Stunt Show. This edition is out of time. My name is Mayor Furtick. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I certainly appreciate it. Thanks to my guest, Leah Vincent. Uh, coming up next on the live stream of the Nachum Siegel Network, Throwback Thursday, a, uh, an historic edition of JM the AM. Stay tuned for that. And please be part of Fundraising Marathon 2014. Show your support. Click on the uh, Donate button at NachumSiegel.com or at JMTheAM.org. And if you'd like, if you must be part of the excitement, then tomorrow morning between 6 and 9, New York.
York time, call two, call 800-989-9368. But however you do it, please be part of the fun, and please be part of supporting JM and the AM. Have a great afternoon, everybody. I'm Mayor Fritting. <laughs>